We're back again. It's Chase and Josh with Factor Fantasy. That's Chase and I'm Josh, and we are here to give you part two of The Lord of the Rings and The Return of the King today. We are going to cover chapter six through chapter 10. And I'm telling you what, guys, some of the biggest moments happen in these chapters, and we're really excited to bring it here to you today. You know, between this week and next week, these are the huge climatic moments of the entire series. It's all built up to this, and we are we're, it's finally at hand. We're finally here, and really excited to dive into it and you know get right into the thick of it, as Chase likes to say. But before we go ahead and dive in, give a quick recap of last week, I want to turn the, the floor over to Chase to say a few words before we get started. Yeah, we're we're here, <laughs> literally into the thick of it. So. It's up to you to determine whether this week is the climax or next week is the climax. But either way, it's an action-packed ride today. Next week's going to be another action-packed ride. And uh, here we are. It's, it's definitely flown by, but let's get it going, man. Just to give a quick little recap of where we left off last week. Last week, you know, it was a lot of preparing for a huge battle. You know, we had... Gandalf and Pippin over there, Minas Tirith, trying to you know, kind of make, I wouldn't say peace with Denethor, but at least trying to get everyone on the same page and making sure the battle plans are going along, you know, the way that they should. And there was a little bit of a power struggle there between Denethor and, and Gandalf. And then over it with uh, King Thaden and Rohan, we had those rangers show up. The Dunedain showed up to assist Aragorn. They decide they're going to take the path of the dead. King Thaden decides, you know, they have no choice but to ride to Gondor at full speed when the messenger came with the red arrow and so the battle had started to go pretty poorly for Gondor in the beginning parts and kind of right at the end of where we left off last week is when Rohan finally entered the fray they they you know the horns were blaring they finally uh, got set up along the ways and they're about to make their rush head on into the battle and that's pretty much where we pick up here today and so really excited to dive into it here so to kind of give a little bit of an idea of what i thought was important in this first chapter here that we're going to talk about chapter six it's called the battle of pelinor fields uh, main things I, I really took away is that the rohan cavalry makes a huge difference in this battle i also thought it was pretty sick too because obviously gondor didn't have a lot of horses and if anything any sort of uh, fantasy fiction franchise taught us like a cavalry makes a big difference in war and just think about you know no long further than Game of Thrones, how that really helped out when uh, the Battle of Bastards happened. There's other battles in that series too, where the cavalry makes a big difference, and it just is. Uh, it was huge because Gondor doesn't have a lot of horses, and Rohan is known as the Horse Lords. So big, uh, big moment there for Rohan coming to Gondor's aid. I thought this part was pretty cool. Uh, King Thaden actually single-handedly takes down the Herodrum chieftain with a spear right on his uh, on his horse Snowmane, which is kind of badass. But then this is the this is going to be the end for our boy King Thaden uh, because of the king of the Nazgûl. He speared Thaden's horse Snowmane, and Thaden fell off the horse, and then Snowmane's body lands on top of Thaden, crushing him. And that's when it comes down that creature it starts ripping apart the, the horse it just killed, and then this. This warrior named Durnhelm comes in between the Nazgul and King Thaden. And the the king of the Nazgul says, "You know, you should never stand between the Nazgul and his prey." And you know, she said something along the lines. I, I know that the it was a big quote in the movie. I didn't even write it down because I just 
didn't think that was terribly, terribly important. But he says something like, you know, no living man, you know, can do anything to me. And she's like, well, I am no living man. And she rips her helmet off and it's actually Eowyn. Here she is. She's going to fight the king of the Nazgul by herself with a sword. Uh, this is the first time I really see in this series a woman taking a prominent role in terms of a, a, a fight, like a, a single combat fight. And we don't really see women go into single combat in many fantasy franchise like series. I don't really... I don't see them, you know. That, you show me where that really happens outside of maybe Arya in Game of Thrones, but I don't really see. I guess maybe Hermione as well. She had her moments when she was, you know, when they had that big thing in the order within Order of Phoenix when they were in the Department of uh, Mysteries. But really, I don't see it too often. This is this is hand to hand combat, sword in hand against the King of the Nazgul, which is maybe outside of Sauron the the strongest villain. Or the strongest foe that our good guys could come against. Remember, every time it would even come near, everyone would just freak out and despair and fear. And this girl standing her ground in front of him, and he brings his like mace down and smashes her shield, breaks her arm immediately. And she looks like she's gonna have a short-lived fight there. But our our uh, little hobbit Mary sneaks up behind him and stabs the king of the Nazgul behind the knee. And because of the type of sword it was. And it was made, you know, by the, the the people in the north, and it was from the Barrow Downs. It actually had some sort of power to it, to where it was able to penetrate his his body in a way that normally, since it's not he's not a living being, that wouldn't happen that way. But immediately, Mary's arm goes numb, like it has lost all its feeling in his right arm. But long story short, the King of Nazgul falls down to one knee, and then Eowyn puts the sword through its face, and. That's it. She she defeated and vanquished the king of the Nazgul by herself in single combat with a little help from Mary. But you know what? You talk about like a woman who has very limited experience in single combat and a hobbit who probably has zero experience in single combat. I think it's fair. That two-on-one is not a bad two-on-one. So I'm not going to say that that uh, they cheated him. But uh, yeah, that was that was pretty much the, the end of it. So I also missed the part too when... Before she even had that one-on-one with the king of the Nazgul, she actually cut off the Naz like the creature's head. Like she she cut it off clean instead of dropped off its neck like a boulder. That was sick. But um, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really cool. So then Feoden he's dying due to his body being crushed upon like, by his horse upon its fall. But before he dies, he says goodbye to Mary. He names Aomer the king of the Mark and wishes that he could have bidden farewell to Eowyn. But he has no idea that she lay unconscious right by him and that it was she who vanquished the king of the Ringwraiths. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And he, uh, yeah, that's the end of King Thaden. He passes on and to the, the house of his father. He's going, he's going to the havens. He's, he's off. So uh, Another cool thing here, Mary's sword. It basically melts after piercing the ringwraith. Like it's smoking and it's almost like smoldering wood. But it's steel. So it's crazy that the effect that these ringwraiths have. And then... Like I mentioned, his arm's fully numb after stabbing the Ringwraith, and Eowyn is unconscious. So harming the Ringwraith clearly takes a heavy toll on the people who, you know, penetrate their body or, or harm them, period. And then we start to see, you know, they had started to lose a little bit of hope because they lost their king, and Eomer got started to really think with emotion versus battle strategy and just ran headlong, headlong into the forces. And they see a fleet of ships with black sails approach from the Anduin River, and they're seemingly there to aid the hosts of Mordor. So they're like, shit, we're kind of fucked. And now we're in a really bad spot because we're pinned between, you know, the, uh, the people who are fighting in front of us and these ships that are coming from behind us. But plot twist, off of those ships, instead of more allies of Mordor, 
Aragorn himself, with the standard of Elendil, which is the tree of Gondor with seven stars around it and a high crown above it, and this is, you know, to give a sidetrack, this is the what the Dunedain brought Aragorn that he was keeping hidden until the right time. He unfurled the full thing, pronounced himself basically king of king of Gondor right there, that he came, and so he jumped off the lead ship, and and uh, they, the Islas and Mordor were like, what the hell, we were supposed to have some more <laughs> more people here to help us out, and all of a sudden, it's it's this guy with more allies for Gondor versus Mordor, so it was awesome. Now the hosts of Mordor were attacked from the east by the knights of Dol Amrita, from the south by the Rohirrim, and from the north by Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, and the Dunedain, which including Elrond's sons, uh, Elidon and Elrohir. And so, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go ahead and read the last paragraph on page 123, and I'm going to take it through the end of the chapter. So, right here it says, Then the sun went at last behind Mindolion and filled the sky with a great burning, so that the hills and the mountains were dyed as with blood, fire glowed in the river, and the grass of the Pelennor lay red in the nightfall. And in that hour the great battle of the field of Gondor was over, and not one living foe was left within the circuit of the Ramas. All were slain, save those who fled to die or to drown in the red foam of the river. Few ever came eastward to Morgul or Mordor, and to the land of the Herodrim came only a tale from far off, a rumor of wrath and terror of Gondor. Aragorn and Eomir and Imrahil rode back towards the gate of the city, and they were now weary beyond joy or sorrow. These three were unscathed, for such was their fortune and skill and might of their arms, and few indeed had dared to abide them or look on their faces in the hour of their wrath, but many were hurt or maimed or dead upon the field. The axes hewed forlong as he fought alone and unhorsed, and both Dulian of Morthon and his brother were trampled to death when they assailed the Mumakil, leading their bowmen close to shoot the eyes of the monsters. Neither Hirluin or the fair, the fair would return to Pinneth Gallen, nor Grimbold to Grimslade, nor Halbarad to the Northlands, dour-handed ranger. No few had fallen, renowned or nameless, captain or soldier, for it was a great battle, and the full count of it no tale is told. So long afterward a maker in Rohan said in his song of the mounds in Mumberg, We heard the horns in the hills ringing, the sword shining in the south kingdom. Steeds went striding to the, stone, the stoning land, as wind in the morning war was kindled. There Theoden fell, Thanglin mighty, to his golden halls and green pastures, in the northern fields never returning. High Lord of the Host, Harding and Gulaf, Dunhir and Diorwin, Doughty Grimbold, Herafara and Herabran, Horn and Fastrid, fought and fell there in a far country, in the mounds of Munberg, under mold they lie. With their league fellows, Lord of Gondor, neither Hiluan the fair to the hills by the sea, nor Falong to the old to the flowering vales, ever to Arnak to his own country, returned in triumph, nor the tall bowmen, Derefun and Dulian to their dark waters. Mirs of Morthon under mountain shadows, death in the morning, and at day's ending, lords took and lowly. Long now they sleep under grass and Gondor by the great river. Gray now is tears, gleaming silver. Red then it rolled, roaring water, foam dyed with blood, flamed at sunset, as beacon mountains burned at evening, and red fell the dew in Ramus Echor. And that is the end of the chapter, the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. And so just all that that I mentioned were the, the main key aspects, right? So that was a huge battle, and I know there's intricate parts where you know, certain things happen, but those are the overall arching themes that, I, that stuck out to me personally. Chase, what did you take from that chapter that maybe I missed or maybe you thought that was more important than maybe I picked up on? No, I thought you did great. Um, I mean, I really like the part where you mentioned uh, 
want to make sure I say it right. The Cosairs of Umbar. Did I say that right? The Cosairs? Yes. Yep. Yeah. What, uh, I thought it was really cool. Like when Aragorn like came in and kind of saved the day. It was almost like Gandalf and like Helm's Deep there. Like still, keep in mind, I think a lot of people don't realize, even though the Witch King, Eowyn, killed the Witch King, that didn't mean like their army just collapsed and fell. <laughs> like this isn't like... You know, this isn't like the Night King where Arya killed the Night King and the rest of the army just dies. That doesn't happen here. Uh, so I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, in this moment kind of here is when all Aragorn's like hard ass work of like rebuilding the sword and all of this, getting the army of the dead is kind of paying off at this point. Like he really just saved the day here. So I thought that was a really big moment. But not man. Let's go ahead and take it away with the next one. Yeah, right before we get into chapter seven, just want to make sure that Aragorn himself didn't rebuild the sword. The the elves did, so he didn't really have yeah, any that, part well, of the that. Elves did. I'm but, just talking to rephrase that for our audience here. I'm talking about like all the way back in the fellowship where he said this sword would be reforged. So everything he's kind of tried to withhold with this prophecy from this point is starting to, in a sense, come to pass. Which. In a way, this is kind of really, this is why you have the title of this book, <laughs> really. So, yeah, but I'll let you take it away, brother. Sounds like a plan, yeah, to jump right into uh, Chapter 7. Chapter 7 is called The Pyre of Denethor. And in here, like, this, is, this was a very fast chapter. So I only had a few takeaways that I thought were important to notate on this one. Pippin basically convinces Gandalf to try and save Faramir instead of riding out into battle himself. So Gandalf was ready to go into a raid. He had, he had that face-to-face with the um, Witch King, you know, as we call him, or the King of the Nazgul, whatever you want to say. He had that face-to-face, and then he had the, the King of the Nazgul flew off into battle because he heard the horns of Rohan coming. And then Gandalf was about to ride out and assist, and Pippin gets there in time. He's like, hey, you know, Denethor is going to kill himself and Faramir. And, you know, everyone in the city loved Faramir, and he's, you know, someone who's been very noble and very helpful not only to Gondor but to Frodo and Sam let them go along their way to destroy that ring so or at least attempt to right and so Gandalf has to make a decision and he ends up deciding all right we're gonna do our best to go save to go save Faramir so they they take Shadowfax up the steps of Minas Tirith they get to the uh, the like the house where you know they, they do like the funeral stuff like the rituals there and now uh, you know Baragon our, our boy Baragon he's there doing his best to stop the servants of Denethor from obeying and assisting and burning Denethor and Faramir alive. So Gandalf arrives and kind of shuts everything down. All the servants kind of stop doing stuff. He like you know has this little dialogue back and forth with Denethor. And Denethor, what he does is, well, first Gandalf arrives and knocks a sword out of Denethor's hand and gets Faramir off the pyre before it was set ablaze. So luckily, Faramir's no longer on the pyre there. He's still hanging on, you know, the dearest clutches of life. He's doing his best he can. He's unconscious. He's like in on some sort of coma. This a big fever, and instead of uh, at least, he, at least he has a fighting shot now that Gandalf got him off the pyre. But then Denethor accuses Gandalf of wanting to rule Gondor and of trying to supplant him with Aragorn, like the rightful king, and decides what he's going to do is he's going to take his life into his own hands. And he ends up setting fire to his his own pyre and laid on it with the palantir in his hands, burning himself alive to his own death. So there, in the words of Gandalf, so passes Denethor, son of Ectelion. But he's, uh, he's gone, so no more steward of Gondor. Well, at least it's not Denethor, it's Faramir now. Uh, and then 
Well, as of right now, we don't even know if Faramir's going to make it through. He's still in this really rough shape. So Gandalf and Pippin and Baragon bring Faramir to the Houses of Healing. And Gandalf surmises that Denethor was driven mad by what he saw in the Palantir, what Sauron was allowing him to see. So that was a whole thing. Like, you know, the, the, the seeing stone was a big revelation that there was another one found. And Denethor has been looking into it and trying to wrestle with the mind of Sauron and, and thinking he was strong enough to withhold it. But Sauron was actually only letting him see what he allowed him to see. And that kind of driven him mad because he saw all the, the hosts of Mordor and how basically it was it was all in despair. All, the, all this work to try and fight them off was never going to work because Mordor has way more numbers than they do just just by you know, battle people alone let alone the 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 other things in terms of the ring wraiths <laughs> in terms of like the reach of getting other allies from other locations if they needed it like there was just nothing was really going to be working in the favor of the good guys really so but those were the big takeaways i had from that chapter there the the, the pyre of denethor did you have anything specifically that you wanted to take out of that one no that was great uh just a side note here and we'll get into more of the differences in a, a few weeks from now. It was interesting because I remember in the film, remember he like Denethor fell off like the Tower of Gondor in flames. So that's a pretty cool ad. <laughs> but like that never happened at all yeah. in here. Also, I don't remember. I'll have, we'll get into this when we go into the differences because I'll rewatch this scene. Was he he wasn't holding the Palantir when he died in the film when he fell off that tower, was he? No, I don't. I don't even remember. And like again, it's been a long time since I've seen the movie. I don't remember him having the Palantir. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. To be honest, like in, in the film specifically. Obviously, we just read the part where he like, right. held it in his hands and was burned on the prior with it, him holding it. And I even thought it was kind of cool. Is that anyone that looked on the Palantir, unless they had a really strong mind, all they would see was gray, withered hands holding it. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't even remember Denethor having the Palantir. I might be completely wrong. I, you know, it just very just haven't seen the movie in a long time so i guess when we do the differences we can pay attention to it but no i don't believe he had the palantir in his hand when he jumped off the that cliff edge on fire so yeah, <laughs> which man. that was badass but now i'm kind of like thinking of like dude like wow man <laughs> like yeah that was a cool ad but why <laughs> but i mean i don't know it kind of reminded me of the draco malfoy foreshadowing throw myself off the astronomy tower <laughs> anyways no man i thought you nailed it uh i'll let you take the next chapter cool let's jump into the next chapter which is called the houses of healing and a few things i took away from the houses of healing this is where mary and pippin reunite so they had brought in king thaden's body underneath a cover of gold out of respect and Eowyn, you know, who Eomer thinks is dead, it turns out that she's not quite dead. The uh, Imlarius, or whatever his name is, the Prince of Dol Amroth, he tells everyone that, hey, you know, she, like, she's on the doorstep of death, but as of right now, she still lives, that she needs to get immediate help. And so they bring her into the Houses of Healing. Theoden, they, they, you know, cover him up and bring him to the, the place of respect where the Steward of Gondor would be laying. And then Mary, he ended up getting lost along the way. And Pippin was able to find him, uh, and he was like in, a, in like a delirious state himself. Like his, he couldn't use his right arm at all. Was fully numb, and he was having these weird, like you know, his his cognitive abilities were failing him. Like his brain was not working, and finally he collapsed. And and uh, Gandalf. So uh, Pippin found 
Virgil, which is Baragon's son, and Virgil ran up and got Gandalf, and Gandalf came himself, and they were able to get Mary into the Houses of Healing but his right, for his right arm, which is still paralyzed. So right now, in, in this moment, Faramir, Eowyn, and Mary are all in rough shape, and none of the healers are sure if any of them are going to make it. And I also thought this was pretty interesting as well, too. So throughout that whole battle that we had mentioned in, on the Pelennor fields outside of Gondor, we mentioned you know, the, the men of the city of Gondor who were fighting in it. We mentioned Rohirrim who came to aid. And we mentioned Aragorn coming off the ships that were supposed to be the Corsairs of Umbar. And of all this battle and all this fighting, Gandalf himself never once rode out into the, the fray and the fighting himself. And he had intended to, but other, other matters had stopped him from doing so. And so I'm just so curious, like, what would have happened if he ended up going out into battle? What would that have been, you know, for better or for worse? Or did everything kind of turn out how it was supposed to be? So just some things, like, I, I think about uh, when it comes to that. Not that it's, like, wildly important or whatever, but just something I thought was interesting. Because he went out in, the, like, the first fray to, to drive away the Nazgul, his, his ray of light. But I'm talking when all the forces were together, like the Rohan, Gondor, and, you know, Aragorn coming off them ships. He never once rode out to, to finish off that battle. So very interesting. Then uh, here's here's like kind of a bit of a foreshadow. There's this old woman healer. Her name is Iorith, and she tells Gandalf of an old saying that goes along the lines of, "The hands of the king are the hands of a healer." And obviously, we know Aragorn is now, like Chase said, the title of the book, "Return of the King." He is now returned to the city of Gondor, and he's he's trying to kind of do things in a easy way I would say like he's not trying to just proclaim it and have half the city divided on who agrees with him and who other ones like oh he's just you know some guy who has a false claim to the throne or whatever so he's like staying outside the city but you know if he's really the king and the hands of the king are the hands of a healer we're gonna see what ends up happening and I think Aragorn did it right because now other people can speak for him of what they saw so to kind of go into it Aragorn decides to stay outside of the city to avoid causing division amongst allies of his claim to the throne and we also had like we get to this part where Aramor he he learns that Eowyn is not dead and him as well as Imrahil go to the houses of healing where Gandalf fills him in on everything that's going on and Aragorn who was supposed to be outside the city happens to be there cloaked in gray at Gandalf's request and I was like no get your ass in the city we need you real quick and so uh <laughs> Aragorn advises them you know all that says hey Gandalf should lead us right now when it comes to dealings with the enemy and they all agree so Aemir, uh Imrahil and Aragorn all appoint Gandalf kind of as like their leader to when it comes to dealings with Sauron now we get into the house of the healing with Aragorn and he requests uh, Athelis and or it's called King's Foil in common speak and if you guys remember this is kind of a full circle moment because that's what he needed to put on Frodo's wound in his shoulder back in the Fellowship of the Ring when he got stabbed by the Witch King and so we hear about this plant all over again and it's funny because the people in Gondor they don't believe in its healing properties they don't even keep it in their healing stores they had to go find like the random plants that people would just have to make their house smell better I think it was and so yeah they, they don't the healers don't keep the herb and they don't believe any of its true healing properties so I'm gonna go ahead and read a few paragraphs here I'm gonna read like what I call the awakening of Faramir uh, first that's going to be, for me, it's going to be the second paragraph on page 144. And it goes, At last, Virgil came running in, and he bore six leaves in a cloth. It is king's foil, sir, he said, but not fresh, I fear. It must have been cold two weeks ago at the least. I hope it will serve, sir. Then, looking at Faramir, he burst into tears. 
But Aragorn smiled. It will serve, he said. The worst is now over. Stay and be comforted. Then taking two leaves, he laid them on his hands and breathed on them. And then he crushed them, and straight away a living freshness filled the room as if the air itself awoke and tingled, sparkling with joy. Then he cast the leaves into the bowls of steaming water that were brought to him. And at once all hearts were lightened, for the fragrance that came to each was like a memory of dewy mornings of unshadowed sun in some land of which the fair world in spring is itself but a fleeting memory. But Aragorn stood up as one refreshed, and his eyes smiled as he held a bowl before Faramir's dreaming face. Well now, who would have believed it? said Iorith to a woman that stood beside here. The wheat is better than I thought. It reminds me of the roses of Imloth Melu when I was a lass and no king could ask for better. And suddenly Faramir stirred and he opened his eyes and he looked on Aragorn who bent over him and a light of knowledge and love was kindled in his eyes and he spoke softly. My lord, you called me. I come. What does the king command? Walk no more in the shadows, but awake, said Aragorn. You are weary? Rest a little and take food and be ready when I return. I will, Lord, said Faramir, for who would lie idle by when the king has returned? Farewell, then, for a while, said Aragorn. I must go to others who need me. Then he left the chamber with Gandalf and Imrahil, but Baragon and his son remained behind, unable to contain their joy, and as he followed Gandalf and shut the door, Pippin heard Iorith exclaim, King, did you hear that? What did I say? The hands of a healer, I said and soon the word had gone out from the house that the king was indeed come among them, and after war he brought healing, and the news ran through the city. So that was the awakening of Faramir there, and a little full circle of her proclamation of the, the hands of the king are hands of the healer. So that's great. Now to, to what I call the awakening of Eowyn, I'm going to go ahead and take the second paragraph on 145 here. It says, But Aragorn came to Eowyn, and he said, here there is a grievous hurt and a heavy blow. The arm that was broken has been tended with due skill, and it will mend in time if she has the strength to live. It is a shield arm that is maimed, but the chief evil comes through the sword arm, and that there now seems no life, although it is unbroken. Alas, for she was pitted against a foe beyond the strength of her mind or body, and those who will take a weapon to such an enemy must be sterner than steel, and the very shock shall not destroy them. It was an evil doom that set her in his path, for she is a fair maiden, fairest lady of a house of queens, and yet I know not how I should speak of her. When I first looked on her and perceived her unhappiness, it seemed to me that I saw a white flower standing straight and proud, shapely as a lily, and yet knew that it was hard as if wrought by elfrites out of steel. Or was it maybe a frost that had turned its sap to ice, and so it stood, bittersweet, still fair to see, but stricken, soon to fall and die? Her malady begins far back before this day, does it not, Aomer? I marvel that you should ask me, Lord, he answered, for I hold you blameless in this matter as in all else, yet I knew not that Eowyn my sister was touched by any frost until she first looked on you. Care and dread she had, and shared with me in the days of Wormtongue and the king's bewitchment, and she tended the king in growing fear, but that did not bring her to this pass. My friend, said Gandalf, you had horses and deeds of arms and free fields, but she, born in the body of a maid, had a spirit and courage at least the match of yours. Yet she was doomed to wait upon an old man whom she loved as a father and watched him falling into a mean, dishonored dotage, and her part seemed to, seemed to her more ignoble than that of the staff he leaned on. Think you that Wormtongue had poison only for Theoden's ears? Dotard, what is the house of Eorl but 
a thatched barn where brigands drink in the reek and the brats roll on the floor among their dogs. Have you not heard those words before? Saruman spoke them, the teacher of Wormtongue, though I do not doubt that Wormtongue at home wrapped their meaning in terms more cunning. My lord, if your sister's love for you and her will still bent to her duty had not restrained her lips, you might have heard even such things as these escape them. But who knows what she spoke to the darkness, alone, in the bitter watches of the night when all life seemed shrinking and the walls of her bower closing in about her, a hutch to trammel some wild thing in. Then Eomer was silent and looked on his sister as if pondering anew all the days of their past life together. But Aragorn said, I saw also what you saw, Eomer. Few other griefs amid the ill chances of the world have more bitterness and shame for a man's heart than to behold the love of a lady so fair and brave that cannot be returned. Sorrow and pity have followed me ever since I left her desperate in Dunharrow and rode to the paths of the dead, and no fear upon that way was so present as the fear for what might befall her. And yet, Aylmer, I say to you that she loves you more truly than me, for you she loves and knows, but in me she loves only a shadow and a thought, a hope of glory and great deeds, and lands far from the fields of Rohan. I have maybe the power to heal her body and to recall her from the dark valley, but to what she will awake, hope or forgetfulness or despair, I do not know. And if to despair, then she will die, unless other healing comes from which I cannot bring. Alas, for her deeds have set her among the queens of the great renown. Then Aragorn stopped and looked at her face, and indeed it was white as a lily, cold as frost, and hard as graven stone. But he bent and kissed her on the brow and called her softly, saying, Eowyn, Eowyn's daughter, awake, for your enemy has passed away. She did not stir, but now she began again to breathe deeply, so that her breast rose and fell underneath the white linen of the sheet. And once more Aragorn bruised two leaves of Athelis and cast them into steaming water, and he laved her brow with it, her right arm lying cold and nerveless on the coverlet. Then, whether Aragorn had indeed some forgotten power of Western Ness, or whether it was but his words of the Lady Eowyn that wrought on them, as a sweet influence of the herb stole about the chamber, it seemed to those who stood by that a keen wind blew through the window, and it bore no scent, but was an air wholly fresh and clean and young, as it had not been before breathed by any living thing, and came new-made from snowy mountains high beneath a dome of stars, or from shores of silver far away washed by seas of foam. Awake, Eowyn, Lady of Rohan, said Aragorn again, and he took her right hand in his, and it felt warm with life returning. Awake, the shadow was gone, and all darkness was washed clean. Then he laid her hand in Eomer's and stepped away. Call her, he said, and he passed silently from the chamber. Eowyn, Eowyn, cried Eomer amid his tears. But she opened her eyes and said, Eomer, what joy is this? For they said that you were slain. Nay, but that was only the dark voices in my dream. How long have I been dreaming? Not long, my sister, said Eomer, but think no more on it. I am strangely weary, she said. I must rest a little, but tell me, what of the Lord of the Mark? Alas, do not tell me that was a dream, for I know that it was not. He is dead as he foresaw. He is dead, said Eomer, but he bade me say farewell to Eowyn, dearer than daughter. He lies now in great honor in the citadel of Gondor. That is grievous, she said, and yet it is good beyond all that I dared hope in the dark days when it seemed that the house of Eorl was sunk in honor less than any shepherd's cot. And one of the king's esquire, the halfling, Eomer, you shall make him a knight of the Rittermark, for he is valiant. He lies nearby in this house, and I will go to him, said Gandalf. Eomer, shall stay here for a while, but do not speak yet of war or woe until you are made whole again. Great gladness it is to see you wake again to health and hope, so valiant a lady. 
To health, said Eowyn, and maybe so. At least while there is an empty saddle of some fallen rider that I can fill, and there are deeds to do. But to hope, I do not know. And that was the awakening of Eowyn, and now I'm going to go ahead and take the awakening of Mary, which is the third paragraph here on page 148, and I'm going to take that all the way through. Uh, the break in the page on page 149, it says, Do not be afraid, said Aragorn. I came in time, and I have called him back. He is weary now and grieved, and he has taken a hurt like Lady Eowyn, daring to smite that deadly thing. But these evils can be amended, so strong and gay a spirit is in him. His grief he will not forget, but it will not darken his heart, and it will teach him wisdom. Then Aragorn laid his hand on Mary's head, and passing his hand gently through the brown curls, he touched the eyelids and called him by name. And when the fragrance of Athelis stole through the room, like the scent of orchards and of heather in the sunshine full of bees, suddenly Mary awoke, and he said, I am hungry. What is the time? Past supper time now, said Pippin, though I dare say I could bring you something if they will let me. They will indeed, said Gandalf, and anything else that this rider of Rohan may desire, if it can be found in Minas Tirith, where his name is in honor. Good, said Mary, then I would like supper first, and after that a pipe. At that his face clouded. No, not a pipe. I don't think I'll smoke again. Why not, said Pippin. Well, answered Mary slowly, he is dead. It has brought it all back to me. He said he was sorry he had never had a chance of talking herblore with me, almost the last thing he ever said. I shan't ever be able to smoke again without thinking of him. And that day, Pippin, when he rode up to Isengard and he was so polite. Smoke then and think of him, said Aragorn, for he was a gentle heart, and a great king, and kept his oaths, and he rose out of the shadows to a last fair morning. Though your service to him was brief, it should be a memory glad of honorable to the end of your days. And Mary smiled. Well then, he said, if Strider will provide what is needed, I will smoke and think. I had some of Saruman's best in my pack, but what became of it in the battle, I am sure I don't know. Master Meriadoc, said Aragorn, if you think that I have passed through mountains and the realm of Gondor with fire and sword to bring herbs to a careless soldier who throws away his gear, you are mistaken. If your pack has not been found, then you must send for the herb master of this house, and he will tell you that he did not know what the herb you desire had any virtues, but that it is called Westman's Weed by Vulgar and Galenus by the Noble and other names and other tongues more learned. And after adding a few half-forgotten rhymes that he does not understand, he will regretfully inform you that there is none in this house, and he will leave you to reflect on history of tongues. And so now must I, for I have not slept in a bed as this since I rode from Dunharrow, nor eaten since the dark before the dawn. And Mary seized his hand and kissed it. I am frightfully sorry. Go at once. Ever since that night at Bree we have been a nuisance to you. But it is the way of my people to use light words at such times and say less than they mean. We fear to say too much. It robs us of the right words when a jest is out of place. I know that well, or I would not deal with you in the same way, said Aragorn. May the Shire live forever unwithered. And kissing Mary, he went out, and Gandalf went with him. So now Faramir, Eowyn, and Mary, they are all alive. They're all on the mend when uh, just a couple moments before, they were all on death's doorstep. So Aragorn's got some level of power in him, and it's going to be cool to kind of see where that goes. And just to finish off the rest of this chapter... There is, I'm going to read on page 150 from the second to last paragraph. It's just going to close this right on out. It says, At the doors of the houses, many were already gathered to see Aragorn, and they followed after him. And when at last he had supped, men came and prayed that he would heal their kinsmen or their friends whose lives were in peril through hurt or wound or who lay under the black shadow. 
And Aragorn arose and went out, and he sent for the sons of Elrond, and together they labored far into the night. And word went through the city, The king is come again indeed. And they named him Elfstone, because of the green stone he wore, and so the name which it was foretold at his birth that he should bear was chosen for him by his own people. And when he could labor no more, he cast his cloak about him, slipped out of the city, and went to his tent just before dawn and slept for a little. And in the morning, the banner of Dol Amroth, a white ship like a swan upon blue water, floated from the tower, and all men looked up and wondered if the coming of the king had been but a dream. And that is the end of the chapter of the Houses of Healing. Those are the big things that stood out to me. What stood out to you? Yeah, no, just a couple of thoughts on that. I thought you nailed it. Uh, one, I think it's a little bit ironic that uh, all of them are, you know, kind of made it away Scott clean, except for the one guy that says in the film, is this all you can conjure, Saruman? <laughs> but, you know, um, Faramir, I thought it was interesting in the book that he actually got, uh, correct me if I understood this correctly when I read it, he got poisoned by a Southron dart. Is that right? Was mm-hmm. it a dart as if like a, like a, the way I was thinking, the way it was describing it, like a blow, like a blow dart or something? Like I pictured one of those little people in the villages that came out of like the jungle book <laughs> with well, the little darts or something. Keep in mind that the, the men of Harad that were riding the Mumakils, which are what, you know, Frodo and Sam called the oliphants or elephants as we know them. Uh, that that is one of their um, signature things is, is poison darts. And so I'm assuming that, that I don't know if it was exactly a blow dart, but it's something just like that. It's not like a full arrow or anything. But yeah, so you know, if I were to guess, maybe a blow dart, but maybe something that can be launched from something else other than just uh, a, maybe it could be like a crossbow with a dart in it. You know, who knows? But it definitely, um, it wasn't like a full arrow, but it was a poison dart. Gotcha. Um, yeah, it was interesting. Um, kind of ironic, kind of funny. Yeah, this badass spider, Faramir, and your ass gets taken out by a blow dart. <laughs> it was but poison, no. man. I mean, think about, think about it. Now that you, know, you said that, just to give you something to think about, who was one of the greatest renowned warriors in all of, like, all of history's lore and mythology is Achilles, and he got taken out by an arrow to the yeah. ankle. You know what I mean? Like True, these great warriors that, the, you know, just something small can always happen. It doesn't matter. You know, that anything taught us anything, you know, if all of these stories have ever taught us anything is that the mighty can fall with something very small. I did not mean to make that rhyme, but that was cool. Um, so, yeah, man, you know, Achilles went down with an arrow to the ankle. Faramir went down with a poison dart to whatever it got hit. So, but he's not dead. That's the good news. <laughs> that's the good news. No, that's awesome. Side note, that's one of Josh and I's favorite films. I actually even originally read the Iliad and the Odyssey it's based off of, but one of my favorite lines is, there are no packs between lions and men. <laughs> Badass. Anyways, uh, another side note here on what we're talking about in the chapter. This goes back to what we were saying back when we were reading the Two Towers. I still definitely think there's something going on with uh, Eowyn and Aragorn, because he, in that chapter there that you're reading there's even a little part where he like kisses her on the hand do you remember that i think he like kissed her on the hand or something it was either on the the hand or the head i think it might have been like the, like the forehead he oh, the kissed head. Her on. yeah but yeah. um yeah. yeah but that's like a form of a blessing 
Like that's okay. That's pretty standard for you know people. Um, I I do obviously what we did read in that is talking about the love that she had for Aragorn, and he was telling Aomer he was like, you know, the love she had for you is more pure. She only loves like a thought of me, like a shadow of like glory and battle beyond. Like you know, she thinks that I represent the freedom that she's been wanting her whole life, or like the renown and like the the fan, not the fanfare, but. She wanted these great deeds to be done, and she wanted to be someone, you know, who was thought about in history as someone who went to battle and and conquered and, and did great things. And that's what Aragorn kind of represented to her, and that's why he thinks she fell in love with the idea of him, where, you know, she doesn't really know why she loves him. She just does. And that's why we had the whole thing where she, like, freaked out and started crying last week when we went through the first five chapters of this book and yeah. he was saying he was going to go through the paths of the dead and she wanted to go too and he's like I can't dude I can't let you go because number one you know Theoden is your king and he gives you the orders I don't give you the orders number two I wouldn't have you go anyways because I don't even want to go where I'm going but we have to if we want to win this thing so yeah she like she has some sort of lusting attraction of an idea of what he represents more than like a true love for him is like my what I've gathered from uh, the the book so far and I just want to clear this up because this is the way I read it which correct me if I'm wrong the way she's talking about like love for Aomer I was thinking it's more like a brotherly love like she just loves like him being there supporting her and stuff it's not like the Targaryens, where they're actually like have been in love with their brothers, right? <laughs> yes, it's just, it's just <laughs> a, a familial type of love, like family type love, not you know like the way you would love your brother or your sister or your mother or your father, not not a romantic <laughs> love. So. Hey, the, you know those Targaryens in Game of Thrones, man. Aegon was taking over a. Uh, uh, taking over Dragonstone with his two sisters there. <laughs> but uh, anyways, no, man, I I thought you hit all the highlights great, and uh, I'll let you take us into the, the next one here. Some big plans get set up. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, this chapter is called The Last Debate. And it, again, it's one of the smaller chapters, but there's a, a few good things that happen in here. And so some of the bigger takeaways that I have, I'm just going to go ahead and this is where we get Legolas and Gimli back into the fold, and they both have some level of plans of what they want to do for Aragorn if he indeed becomes the king in, in full and they win this war. So the fourth paragraph, uh, this is coming from Gimli, he says, There is some good stonework here, he said as he looked at the walls, but also some that is less good, and the streets could be better contrived. When Aragorn comes into his own, I shall offer him the service of stone rights of the mountain, and he will make a, this a town to be proud of. And then right after that, Legolas, he kind of has the same similar thing, where he says, they need more gardens, said Legolas. The houses are dead, and there is too little here that grows that is glad. If, if Aragorn comes into his own, the people of the wood shall bring him birds that sing and trees that do not die. So they're already making plans for what they want to do for the city for Aragorn as, as gifts and you know offering their services to him, which is kind of crazy because they've already offered as many services as they possibly could. They followed this guy from Rivendell all the way through, and no matter where he went... They followed. Battle of the Helm's Deep, they were there. The Paths of the Dead, they were there. Jumping off them ships, they were there. Chasing Merry and Pippin with a host of orcs, they were there, man. So, uh, they were, those, were the, those were the three best friends that anyone could have. You know, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. So, um, I thought that was cool. But And there's another thing, too. I know you mentioned that too long ago when you were talking about some differences, how Denethor like, ran and jumped off that 
that uh, cliff on fire in the movie versus him just jumping on the pyre with the palantir in the book. Here's another type of difference that it really is impactful, I think. And I think the films could have done some importance with this because this guy, Imrahil, the prince of Dol Amroth, he actually plays a really big role in a lot of things that happen here. And he just doesn't exist in the films. And you know he's very important because this is what this is the, from the words of Legolas. He speaks very highly of Imrahil. And I'm just going to read uh, here on page 153. It says, That is a fair lord and a great captain of men, said Legolas. If Gondor has such men still in these days of fading, great must have been its glory in the days of its rising. So that's like really high praise coming from Legolas about Imrahil. And obviously, you know, Imrahil has some level of elven blood in him because he's, you know, the, of the great men of Numenor. So I thought that was important. So eventually here, Legolas and Gimli meet up with Merry and Pippin. And Legolas has a mind. He starts thinking about after all this is done because he sees the sea. And he even said Galadriel and Lothlorien uh, put it in his mind that, you know, if you're going you're gonna to look upon the sea and you're going to want to go and not come back. And, you know, he's, now he's looking at things. He's like, man, like that, that, the prophecy came true. Seeing the gulls come across the sea, I have a mind to go to the havens and never return. And, and they all try to talk him out of it. Obviously, Mary and Pippin and Gimli, they want to talk him out of it because, you know, he's like, there's always me work here to do in Middle Earth. You can always go there when it's all done. But I thought that was pretty cool that um, they, they really tried. All these friendships that were forged, they don't want him to go to the, the, the gray havens across the, 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 wherever the sea goes. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then the next thing I have here is Legolas tells Merry and Pippin about the journey through the paths of the dead. So I'm actually going to read a couple pages here, because right now we don't really know what happens on the paths of the dead, right? We, we just read to the part where Aragorn jumps off the ships, but we've got no idea what led to where we left off last week of them just you know, going through the paths of the dead. We don't know what that culminated in. And so Legolas finally gives us the, the rundown, and I'm going to go ahead and, and read that. And this is going to be from page 155 through the first paragraph on 158. I'm going to go ahead and take it. it. says, Swiftly then he told of the haunted road under the mountain and the dark tryst at Eric and the great ride thence ninety leagues and three to Pellegrier on Anduin. Four days and nights and on into a fifth we rode from the black stone. He said, And lo, in the darkness of Mordor, my hope rose. For in that gloom the shadow host seemed to grow stronger and more terrible to look upon. Some I saw riding, some striding, yet all moving with the same great speed. Silent they were, but there was a gleam in their eyes. In the uplands of Lamadon they overtook our horses and swept around us, and would have passed us by if Aragorn had not forbidden them. At his command they fell back. Even the shades of men are obedient to his will, I thought. They may serve his needs yet. One day of light we rode, then came the day without dawn, and still we rode on. And Kiro and Ringolo we crossed, and on the third day we came to Linear above the mouth of Gilrain. And there men of Lamadon contested the fords with fell folk of Umbar and Harad, who had sailed up the river. But defenders and foes alike gave up the battle and fled when we came, crying out that the king of the dead was upon them. Only Angbor, lord of Lamadon, had the heart to abide us, and Aragorn bade him gather his folk and come behind, if they dared, when the grey host had passed." At Pelargir, the heir of Isidore will have need of you, he said. Thus we cross over Gilrain, driving the allies of Mordor in rout before us. And then we rested a little while, 
But soon Aragorn rose, saying, Lo, already Minas Tirith is assailed. I fear that it will fall before we come to its aid. So we mounted again before night had passed and went on with all the speed our horses could endure over the plains of Lebanon. Legolas paused and sighed, turning his eyes southward. Softly he sang, Silver flows the streams from Selos to Iru in the green lands of Lebanon. Tall grows the grass there, and the wind from the sea, the white lilies sway. And the golden bells are shaken of Malos and Alpharin in the green fields of Lebanon and the wind from the sea. Green are those fields in the songs of my people, but they were dark then, gray wastes in the blackness before us. And over the wide land, trampling unheeded the grass and the flowers, we hunted our foes through day and night until we came to the bitter end to the great river at last. Then I thought in my heart that we drew near to the sea, for wide was the water and the darkness, and sea birds innumerable cried on its shores. Alas, for the wailing of the gulls, did not the lady tell me to beware of them, and now I cannot forget them. For my part I heeded them not, said Gimli, for we came then at last upon battle in earnest. There at Pelargir lay the main fleet of Umbar, fifty great ships and smaller vessels beyond count. Many of those we pursued and had reached the havens before us and brought their fear with them. And some of the ships had put off, seeking to escape down the river or reach the far shore. And many of the smaller crafts were ablaze. But the Herodrim, being now driven to the brink, turned at bay, and they were fierce in despair. And they laughed when they looked on us, for there were a great army still. But Aragorn halted and cried with a great voice, now come, by the black stone I call you. And suddenly the shadow host that had hung back at the last camp came up like a gray tide sweeping all away before it. Faint cries I heard, and dim horns blowing, and a murmur as of countless far voices. It was like the echo of some forgotten battle in the dark years long ago. Pale swords were drawn, but I know not whether their blades would still bite, for the dead needed no longer any weapon but fear. None would withstand them. To every ship they came that was drawn up, and they passed over the waters to those that were anchored, and all the mariners were filled with a madness of terror and leaped overboard, save the slaves chained to the oars. Reckless we rode among our fleeting foes, driving them like leaves until we came to the shore, and then to each of the great ships that remained, Aragorn sent one of the Dunedain, and they comforted the captives that were aboard and bade them put aside fear and be free. Before the dark day ended, none of the enemy were left to resist us. All were drowned or flying south in the hope to find their own lands upon foot. Strange and wonderful, I thought, it was that the designs of Mordor should be overthrown by such wraiths of fear and darkness. With its own weapons, was it worsted? Strange indeed, said Legolas, and in that hour I looked on Aragorn and thought how great and terrible a lord he might have become in the strength of his will, had he taken the ring himself. Not for naught does Mordor fear him. But nobler is his spirit than the understanding of Sauron, for he is not of the children of Luthien. Never shall that line fail, though the years may lengthen beyond count. Beyond the eyes of the dwarves are such foretellings, said Gimli, but mighty indeed was Aragorn that day. Lo, all the black fleet was in his hands, and he chose the greatest ship to be his own, and he went upon it. And then he let sound a great concourse of trumpets taken from the enemy, and the shadow host withdrew to the shore. There they stood silent, hardly to be seen, save for a red gleam in their eyes that caught the flare of the ships that were burning. And Aragorn spoke in a loud voice to the dead men, crying, Hear now the words of the heir of Isildur. Your oath is fulfilled. Go back and trouble not the valleys ever again. Depart and be at rest. And thereupon the king of the dead stood out before the host and broke his spear and cast it down. Then he bowed low and turned away, and swiftly the whole gray host drew on and vanished like a mist that is driven back by a sudden wind 
and it seemed to me that I awoke from a dream. So all of that is what happened on the paths of the dead and how they came to take over those ships. And I thought it was kind of crazy, even though these, the, these dead ghosts were still able to assist in, you know, taking, oh, taking out some of the important enemies that were going to assist uh, Mordor in the battle against Gondor. So I thought it was really, really cool. But now the next thing I have here is uh, Aragorn, Gandalf, Imrahil, Eomor, Eladon, and Elro here hold a council together outside of the city to figure out their next plan of action. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and, and read from here on page 159, just through here to the end of the chapter. It's a couple pages, but this is all the plans that they lay and they go into in and out. So I want to go through the, the debate of what they all think is the right thing to do and what they decide upon just so we can get their plan of action before we take it to the very last chapter that we'll cover today, uh, chapter 10. So just to go ahead and take it here, it says, When the prince Imrahil had parted from Legolas and Gimli, at once he sent for Eomer, and he went down with him from the city, and they came to the tents of Aragorn that were set upon the field, not far from the place where King Theoden had fallen. And there they took counsel together with Gandalf and Aragorn and the sons of Elrond. My lord, said Gandalf, listen to the words of the steward of Gondor before he died. You may triumph on the fields of Pelnor for a day, but against the power that has now arisen, there is no victory. I do not bid you despair, as he did, but to ponder the truth in these words. The stones of seeing do not lie, and not even the lord of Barad-dûr can make them do so. He can, maybe, by his will, choose what things shall be seen by weaker minds, or cause them to mistake the meaning of what they see. Nonetheless, it cannot be doubted that when Denethor saw great forces arrayed against him in Mordor, and more still being gathered, he saw that which truly is. Hardly has our strength sufficed to beat off the first great assault. The next will be greater. This war, then, is without final hope, as Denethor perceived. Victory cannot be achieved by arms, whether you sit here to endure siege after siege, or march out to be overwhelmed beyond the river. You have a choice of evils, and prudence would counsel you to strengthen such strong places as you have, and there await the onset, for so shall the time before your end be made a little longer. Then you would have us retreat to Minas Tirith, or Dor Amroth, or Dunharrow, and sit like children on sandcastles while the tide is flowing? asked Imrahil. That would be no new counsel, said Gandalf. Have you not done this in little more in all the days of Denethor? But no, I said this would be prudent. I do not counsel prudence. I said victory could not be achieved by arms. I still hope for victory, but not by arms. For into the midst of all this policies comes the ring of power, the foundation of Barad-dûr, and the hope of Sauron. Concerning this thing, my lords, you now all know enough for the understanding of our plight and of Sauron's. If he, if he regains it, your valor is vain, and his victory will be swift and complete, so complete that none can foresee the end of it while this world lasts. If it is destroyed, then he will fall, and his fall will be so low that none can foresee his arising ever again. For he will lose the best part of the strength that was native to him in his beginning, and all that was made or begun with that power will crumble, and he will be maimed forever, becoming a mere spirit of malice that gnaws itself in the shadows, but cannot again grow or take shape, and so a great evil of this world will be removed. Other evils there are that may come, for Sauron himself is but a servant or emissary, yet it is not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us for the succor of those years wherein we are set, uprooting evil in the fields that we know, so that those who live after may clean earth to till. 
What weather they shall have is not ours to rule. Now Sauron knows all this, and he knows that this precious thing which he lost has been found again, but he does not yet know where it is, or so we hope. And therefore he is now in great doubt. For if we have found this thing, there are some among us with the strength enough to wield it. That too he knows. For do I not guess rightly, Aragorn, that you have shown yourself to him in the stone of Orthanc? I did, be- I did so before I rode from the Hornburg, said Aragorn. I deemed that the time was right, and that the stone had come to me for such a purpose. It was then ten days since the ringbearer went east from Rauris and the eye of Sauron. I thought I should be drawn out from his own land. Too seldom has he been challenged since he returned to his tower. Though if I had foreseen how swift would be his onset in an answer, maybe I should not have dared to show myself. Bare time was given to me to come to your aid. But how is this? asked Aomer. All is vain, you say, if he has the ring. Why should he think it not vain to assail us if we have it? He is not yet sure, said Gandalf, and he has not built up his power by waiting until his enemies are secure, as we have done. Also, we could not learn how to wield the full power all in a day. Indeed, it can be used by only one master alone, not by many, and he will look for a time of strife before one of the great among us makes himself master and puts down the others. In that time, the ring might aid him if he were sudden. He is watching. He sees much and hears much. His Nazgul are still abroad. They passed over this field before the sunrise, though few of the weary and sleeping were aware of them. He studies the signs, the sword that robbed him of his treasure remade, the winds of fortune turning in our favor, and the defeat unlooked for of his first assault and the fall of his great captain. His doubt will be growing even as we speak here, his eyes now straining toward us, blind almost to all else that is moving, and so we must keep it. Therein lies all of our hope. Then this is my counsel. We have not the ring. In wisdom or great folly it has been sent away to be destroyed, lest it destroy us. Without it we cannot by force defeat his force. But we must at all costs keep his eye from his true peril. We cannot achieve victory by arms, but by arms we can give the ring bearer his only chance, frail though it be. As Aragorn has begun, so we must go on. We must push Sauron to his last throw. We must call out his hidden strength so that he shall empty his land. We must march out to meet him at once. We must make ourselves the bait, though his jaws should close on us. He will take that bait in hope and in greed, and he will think that in such rashness he sees the pride of the new ring lord. And he will say, So, he pushes out his neck too soon and too far. Let him come on, and behold, I will have him in a trap from which he cannot escape. There I will crush him, and what he has taken in his insolence shall be mine again forever. So he must walk open-eyed into that trap with courage. But small hope for ourselves, for my lords, it may well prove that we ourselves shall perish utterly in a black battle far from the living lands, so that even if Baradur be thrown down, we shall not live to see a new age. But this, I deem, is our duty, and better so than to perish nonetheless, as we surely shall, if we sit here and know as we die that no new age shall be. They were silent for a while, and at length Aragorn spoke. As I have begun... So I will go on. We come now to the very brink where hope and despair are akin. To waver is to fall. Let none now reject the counsels of Gandalf, whose long labors against Sauron come at last to their test. But for him, all would have long ago been lost. Nonetheless, I do not yet claim to command any man. Let others choose as they will. Then said Elrohir, From the north we came with this purpose, and from Elrond, our father, we brought this very counsel. We will not turn back. As for myself, said Aomer, I have little knowledge of these deep matters, 
but I need it not. This I know, and it is enough, that as my friend Aragorn secured me and my people, so I will aid him when he calls. I will go. As for me, said Imrahil, the Lord Aragorn I hold to be my liege lord, whether he claim it or no. His wish is to me a command. I will go also. Yet for a while I stand in the place of the steward of Gondor, and it is mine to think first of its people. To prudence some heed must still be given, for we must prepare against all chances, good as well as evil. Now it may be that we shall triumph, and while there is any hope of this, Gondor must be protected. I would not have us return with a victory to a city in ruins and a land ravaged behind us. And yet we learn from the Rohirrim that there is an army still unfought upon our northern flank. That is true, said Gandalf. I do not counsel you to leave the city all unmanned. Indeed, the force that we lead east need not be great enough for any assault in earnest upon Mordor, so long as it be great enough to challenge battle. And it must move soon. Therefore, I ask the captains, what force could we muster and lead out in two days' time at the latest? And they must be hardy men that go willingly, knowing their peril. All are weary, and very many have wounds, light or grievous, said Aomer. We have suffered much loss of our horses, and that is ill to bear. If we must ride soon, then I cannot hope to lead even two thousand, and yet leave as many for the defense of the city. We have not only to reckon with those who fought on the field, said Aragorn. New strength is on the way from the southern fiefs, now that the coasts have been rid. Four thousand I sent marching from Pelargir through Losternach two days ago, and Angbor the fearless rides before them. If we set out in two days more, they will draw nigh before we depart. Moreover, many were bidden to follow me up the river in any craft they could gather, and with this wind they will soon be at hand. Indeed, several ships have already come to the Harlan. I judge you that we could lead out 7,000 of horse and foot, and yet leave the city in better defense than it was when the assault began. The gate is destroyed, said Imrahil, and where now is the skill to rebuild it and set it up anew? In Erebor, in the kingdom of Dane, there is such skill, said Aragorn, and if all hopes do not perish, then in time I will send Gimli, Gloyanson, to ask for rights of a mountain. But men are better than gates, and no gate will endure against our enemy if men desert it. This, then, was the end of the debate of the lords, that they should set forth on the second morning from that day with seven thousand, if these might be found, and the great part of this force should be on foot because of the evil lands into which they go. Aragorn should find some two thousand of those that he gathered to him in the south, but Imrael should find three and a half thousand, and Aomer five hundreds of the Rohirrim who were unhorsed, but themselves war worthy, and he himself should leave five hundred of his best riders on a horse. Another company of five hundred horses there should be among which should ride the sons of Elrond with the Dunedain and the knights of Dol Amroth. All told, six thousand foot and a thousand horse. But the main strength of the Rohirrim that remained horse and able to fight some three thousand under the command of Elfhelm should waylay the west road against the enemy that was in Anorian. And at once swift riders were sent out to gather what news they could northwards and eastwards from Osgiliath and the road stimulus Morgul. And when they reckoned up all their strength and taken thought for the journeys they should make and the roads they should choose, Imrahil suddenly laughed aloud. Surely, he cried, this is the greatest jest in all the history of Gondor, that we should ride out with seven thousand, scarce as many as a vanguard of its army in the days of its power, to assail the mountains and the impenetrable gate of the black land. So might a child threaten a mail-clad knight with a bow of string and green willow. If the Dark Lord knows so much as you say, Mithrandir, will he not rather smile than fear with his little finger, crush us like a fly that tries to sting him? No, he will try to trap the fly and take the sting, said Gandalf. 
and there are names among us that are worth more than a thousand mail-clad knights apiece. No, he will not smile. Neither shall we, said Aragorn. If this be jest, then it is too bitter for laughter. Nay, it is the last move and a great jeopardy, and from one side or the other it will bring the end of the game. Then he drew Anduro and held it up glittering in the sun. You shall not be sheathed again until the last battle is fought, he said. And that is the end of the chapter of The Last Debate. Some really badass stuff there happens. You know, we get the whole battle plans, what we're going to do. Even like, even kind of draws comparison to a chessboard. And everyone's saying, this is the last move we have on the chessboard. And whether it works or it doesn't work, this is what we're doing. We're going with 7,000 people to the Black Gates of Mordor, where they've got probably hundreds of thousands of enemies that we've got to somehow draw out. And what we've got to do is we've got to give the ring bearer time. That, that is Gandalf's plan. Aragorn co-signs it. Everyone's in agreement. We're going to draw out all the enemies of Mordor. We're probably all going to die, but the hope is that it gives... <laughs> right. Like, the hope is that it gives Frodo enough time and enough distraction to get to Mountain Doom unseen. And that is kind of where that chapter leads off of, you know, what the plan is. Now, before we get into the last one, I'm going to throw it to Chase to see if he had anything else that he took away from that chapter. No, that was perfect. You, you nailed it. Because um, I'm going to save this for our debates because I don't know. I mean, I, I'm all on board with what they're doing, but being realistic, imagine if you were in that group. You're like, I don't know if these two hobbits are still alive. You're saying we got 7,000 against dear Lord knows how many were beat to shit <laughs> we're gonna walk right up to the damn gate like talk about a suicide run man <laughs> like, talk about a suicide mission so uh we'll talk about that later when we get into the debates on the show but it'd be being realistic i'd be uh I guess I'd have to get on board with it because you really have no choice at this point. It's just kind of like best of luck, but it would not be something I'd be looking forward to. And I would put it that way. But yeah, man, no, that was great stuff. I'll let you go ahead and take it away with the the last chapter of today, which is, you know, still pretty action packed, man. That's good stuff. For sure. I mean, at, you know, to just touch on what you said very quickly, you're, you're going there with the expectation to die. That's it. Like you know, there's no, there's no help there. Like you're going there knowing all we are is a distraction. We are gonna get our asses whooped. Like we have, we've got barely any chance for survival. You know, we're gonna do the best we can. But we all know when we march out, we're not coming back. And that's something very scary to know that you're gonna die and do it anyways. So I like because it's just I, you know all the credit in the world to these these warriors, man. I know it's just a story, but. Uh, you know, I couldn't imagine having to be put in that situation. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's uh, kind of almost similar to, you know, Harry Potter when he had to go out to the Forbidden Forest and he knew he had to die. Like, he, had, he had to like just open, like walk into death with open arms. <laughs> like, so, uh, very Let's weird. Let's talk about that for a minute too, though. Because, and this won't get it, because I'm going to save this big debate for the end of our show here. But speaking of that, though, in a way it's even worse. Because at least Harry, which... Yeah, like that was a very powerful moment, especially for both you and I and and how much Harry Potter that franchise means to us too, just like Lord of the Rings. Especially being, you know, really kind of the main character of the story there. 
But at least Harry could rely on Ron, Hermione, Neville Longbottom, you know, McGonagall, the rest of the people that he had backing him to try to hopefully fulfill this thing out, right? With this, this is it. This is all they got. Like, they're taking everyone there. Everyone's about to be slaughtered. Like, this is it, dude. Like, you're taking the 7,000 you have. You're, I mean, who else is going to help them? Maybe Glorfindel and Elrond. They're over there trying to run off to the Undying Lands. Like, like who knows where they are, man? Like, this is it. You got your stars of the show and you just got super lucky that your quarterback wound up coming back at halftime like that's exactly what happened i thought your quarterback was his ass was grass dude like his ass is grass you were over there hanging out with your running back which was aragorn and you had a couple of receivers legolas and gimli like that's what you had he See, just happened i i will i'll disagree in just a little aspect I wouldn't okay. so much consider Gandalf the quarterback. I would consider Gandalf the coach, and I would okay. consider yeah. and I would consider Aragorn the quarterback. That's how I would. It. That's how I'll I'd put it. it right? Because okay. you know that's kind of what Gandalf is doing. He's not doing the brunt of the work. He's playing chess and trying to outmaneuver <laughs> right. the enemy. So I wouldn't call Gandalf the quarterback. I'd call him the head coach, and and I would call Aragorn the quarterback in that situation. I agree with that a hundred percent. I'm just saying like. <laughs> let's think about it though like those are your stars you're putting all your stars all your eggs are in one basket at this point and it's just like galadriel said like everything's hanging on the edge of a blade especially what we'll not give anything away but what we're about to go into they don't even know if they're there <laughs> they don't even know if they're there <laughs> so I don't know, man. We'll talk about this later, but I'll let you take it away with the big. Uh, I mean, I guess you can kind of debate whether or not this or the Battle of Pelennor Fields is like the climax of today, but it's still pretty intense. So I'll let you take it away, man. Sounds like a plan. Yeah, we're going to get into the very final chapter of the day, which is chapter 10. The Black Gate opens. Just a few, few takeaways I have on this here. Not, not too many until I get to a certain page where I'm going to read a few in a row just because it's the final, you know, the final dialogue between you know, the good guys and the bad guys before it all comes to a head. But anyways, the army is set and they begin their march out to Mordor. Uh, Mary is not allowed to go to his disappointment because he's still mending with his arm and like, his mind and you know, trying to recover from his little encounter with the Witch King. Uh, but Pippin goes and he's there to represent the Shire Folk. So, the first day's march, they made it five miles past Gilead, and the next part I thought was pretty cool here, if you guys remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, like the stone head of the fallen king that Frodo and Sam found near Minas Morgul, they find that as well, these men here, and they fix it, they tore down the orc head that was put in its place, and they uh, cleaned the stone of all the deformities and placed the king's head back in its proper place, and I thought that was really cool, maybe some foreshadow there of the, you know, the king being put back where he's meant to be. Thought that was great. Uh, there was a debate about overtaking Minas Morgul before continuing on to the Black Gate, but Gandalf shuts that notion down. I'm actually going to read that. That's the third paragraph for me on page 167. It says, But against this, Gandalf had spoken urgently. Because of the evil that dwelt in the valley where the minds of living men would turn to madness and horror, and because also of the news that Faramir had brought. For if the ring bearer had indeed attempted that way, then above all, they should not draw the eye of Mordor that way. 
So the next day, when the main host came up, they set a strong guard upon the crossroads to make some defense if Mordor should send a force over the Morgul Pass or should bring more men up from the south. For that guard they chose mostly archers who knew the ways of Athelion and would lie hidden in the woods and the slopes about the meeting of the ways. But Gandalf and Aragorn rode with the vanguard to the entrance of Morgul Vale and looked on the evil city. So instead of deciding, yeah, let's go ahead and take over Minas Morgul and maybe get a more direct path to the Black Gate, they're like, yo, no, we don't want at Sauron's eye anywhere near these areas that Frodo and Sam had passed by if that is indeed the way they came. So we're going to continue on the long way to the Black Gate. We're going to keep thinking about our incoming death little by little as we go closer and closer. Uh, the next thing I have on this one is uh, the, the, we have a first semblance of battle. It's the third paragraph on page 168. It says... Nonetheless, though they marched in seeming peace, the hearts of all the army from the highest to lowest were downcast, and with every mile that they went north, foreboding of evil grew heavier on them. It was near the end of the second day of their march from the crossroads that they first met any offer of battle. For a strong force of orcs and easterlings attempted to take their leading companies in an ambush, and that was in the very place where Faramir had waylaid the men of Harad, and the road went in a deep cutting through an outthrust of eastward hills. But the captains of the west were well warned by their scouts, skilled men of Henneth Anun, led by Mablung, and so the ambush was itself trapped. For the horsemen went wide about westward and came upon the flank of the enemy from behind, and they were destroyed or driven east into the hills. But the victory did little to enhearten the captains. It is but a feint, said Aragorn, and its chief purpose, I deem, was to rather draw us on a false guess of our enemy's weakness than to do us much hurt. Yet, and from that evening onwards, the Nazgul came and followed every move of the army. They still flew high and out of sight of all save Legolas, and yet their presence could be felt as a deepening of shadow and a dimming of the sun. And though the ringlets did not yet stoop low upon their foes and were silent, uttering no cry, the dread of them could not be shaken off. And that's, you know, kind of creepy, but <laughs> to keep on moving from there... Uh, Aragorn takes pity on some of the men who were young and also he offers them the choice to go reclaim Ker Andros from the enemy as opposed to fighting in the last stand at the gate so you know he, didn't, he doesn't want to shame them because he could see that there was fear in their eyes and by offering this a good amount of men took that opportunity so that way they wouldn't have to you know walk knowingly into their demise and they have a sort of mission that is still honor worthy and some of the people took it as almost an insult and it made them stronger and, and you know they overcame their fear and they continued on there. So now, instead of 7,000, they're down to 6,000 approaching the Black Gate. So you already had not enough. And now you have even less because Aragorn, you know, he's doing the right thing here and wanting to make sure, you know, he, he, he means well and he knows that walking into your own doom is not an easy thing. And so he takes pity on the people, who, especially the younger ones who really had no business being there in the first place. So I thought that was pretty cool. But then just to finish off the entire chapter, I'm gonna read a few pages in a row here. This is gonna be from page 170 through the end of the chapter. It's gonna be the last paragraph on page 170. It said, no choice was left to them but to play their part to its end. Therefore Aragorn now set the host in such array as could be best contrived. And they were drawn up on two great hills of blasted stone and earth that orcs had piled in years of labor. Before them, towards Mordor, lay like a moat of a great mire of reeking mud and foul-smelling pools. When all was ordered, the captains rode forth towards the black gate with a great guard of horsemen and the banner and the heralds and the trumpeters. There was Gandalf as chief herald, 
and Aragorn with the sons of Elrond, and Eomer of Rohan, and Imrahil, and Legolas, and Gimli, and Peregrine were bidden to go also, so that all the enemies of Mordor should have a witness. There came within a cry of the Morannon, and unfurled the banner, and blew upon their trumpets, and the heralds stood out, and sent their voices up over the battlement of Mordor. Come forth, they cried, let the lord of the black land come forth. Justice shall be done upon him, for wrongly has he made war upon Gondor and wrested its lands. Therefore the king of Gondor demands that he should atone for his evils and depart then forever. Come forth. There was a long silence, and from wall and gate no cry or sound was heard in answer. But Sauron had already laid his plans, and he had a mind first to play these mice cruelly before he struck to kill. So it was that even as the captains were about to turn away, the silence was broken suddenly. There came a long rolling of great drums like thunder in the mountains, then a braying of horns that shook the very stones and stunned men's ears, and thereupon the door of the black gate was thrown open with a great clang, and out of it there came an embassy from the dark tower. At its head there rode a tall and evil shape, mounted upon a black horse, if horse it was, for it was huge and hideous, and its face was a frightful mask, more like a skull than a living head, and in the sockets of its eyes and in its nostrils there was burning a flame. The rider was robed in all black, and black was his lofty helm, yet this was no ringwraith but a living man. The lieutenant of the Tower of Baradur he was, and his name is remembered in no tale, for he himself had forgotten it. And He said, I am the mouth of Sauron. But it is told that he was a renegade, who came of the race of those that are named the Black Numenorians, for they established their dwellings in Middle-earth during the years of Sauron's domination, and they worshipped him being enamored of evil knowledge, and he entered the service of the Dark Tower when it first rose again, and, became, and because of his cunning he grew even higher in the Lord's favor, and he learned great sorcery and knew much of the mind of Sauron, and he was more cruel than any orc. He it was that now rode out, and with him came only a small company of black harness soldiery and a single banner, black, but bearing on it the, e the red and the evil eye. Now halting a few paces before the captains of the west, he looked them up and down and laughed. Is there anyone in this route with authority to treat with me, he asked, or indeed with wit to understand me? Not thou, at least, he mocked, turning to Aragorn with scorn, and needs more to make a king than a piece of elvish glass or a rabble such as this. Why, any brigand of the hills can show as good a following. Aragorn said not an answer, but he took the other's eye and held it, and for a moment they strove thus, but soon, though Aragorn did not stir nor move hand to weapon, the other quailed and gave back as if menaced with a blow. I am a herald and ambassador, and I may not be assailed, he cried. Where such laws hold, said Gandalf, it is also the custom for ambassadors to use less insolence. But no one has threatened you. You have naught to fear from us until your errand is done. But unless your master has come to new wisdom, then with all his servants you will be in great peril. So, said the messenger, then thou art the spokesman, old greybeard. Have we not heard of thee at wiles and of thy wanderings, ever hatching plots and mischief at a safe distance? But this time you have stuck your nose out too far, Master Gandalf, and you shall see what comes to him who sets his foolish webs before the feet of Sauron the Great. I have tokens that I was bidden to show to you, to you especially, if you should dare come. And he signed to one of his guards. He came forward bearing a bundle swathed in black clothes, black cloths. The messenger put these aside, and there, to the wonder and dismay of all the captains, he held up the first, the short sword of Sam that he had carried, and next a gray cloak with an elven brooch 
and the last the coat of mithril mail that Frodo had worn wrapped in his tattered garments. A blackness came before their eyes, and it seemed to them in a moment of silence that the world stood still. But the hearts were dead, and their last hope gone. Pippin, who stood behind Prince Imrahil, sprang forward with a cry of grief. Silence, said Gandalf sternly, thrusting him back, but the messenger laughed aloud. So you have yet another of these imps with you, he cried. What use you find in them, I cannot guess, but to send them as spies in the Mordor is beyond even your accustomed folly. Still, I thank him, for it is plain that this brat, at least, has seen these tokens before, and it would be vain for you to deny them now. I do not wish to deny them, said Gandalf. Indeed, I know them all, and all their history, and despite your scorn, foul mouth of Sauron, you cannot say as much. But why do you bring them here? Dwarf coat, elf cloak, blade of the downfallen west, and spies from the little rat land of the Shire. Nay, do not start. We know it well. Here are the marks of a conspiracy. Now, maybe he that bore these things was such a creature that you would not grieve to lose. And maybe otherwise, one dear to you, perhaps. If so, take swift counsel with what little wit is left to you, for Sauron does not love spies, and what his fate shall be depends now on your choice. No one answered him. But he saw their faces gray with fear and the horror in their eyes, and he laughed again, for it seemed to him that his sport went well. Good, good, he said. He was dear to you, I see. Or else his errand was one that you did not wish to fail. It has. And now he shall endure the slow torment of years, as long and slow as our arts in the great tower can contrive, and never be released, unless maybe when he is changed and broken, so that he may come to you, and you shall see what you have done. This shall surely be unless you accept my lord's terms. Name the terms, said Gandalf steadily, but those nearby saw the anguish in his face, and now he seemed an old and wizened man, crushed, defeated at last. They did not doubt that he would accept. These are the terms, said the messenger, and smiled as he eyed each one of them. The rabble of Gondor and its deluded allies shall withdraw at once beyond the undoing, first taking oaths never again to assail Sauron the Great in arms, open or in secret. All lands east of the Anduin shall be Sauron's forever solely. West of the Anduin, as far as the Misty Mountains and the Gap of Rohan, shall be tributary to Mordor, and men there shall bear no weapons, but shall have leave to govern their own affairs. But they shall help to rebuild Isengard, which they have wantonly destroyed, and that shall be Sauron's, and there his lieutenant shall dwell, not Saruman, but one more worthy of trust. And looking in the messenger's eyes, they read his thought. He was to be that lieutenant and gather all that remained of the West under his sway. He would be their tyrant, and they his slaves. But Gandalf said, This is much to demand for the delivery of one servant, that your master should receive in exchange what he must else fight many a war to gain. Or has the field of Gondor destroyed his hope in war, so that he falls to haggling? If indeed we rated this prisoner so high, what surety have we that Sauron, the base master of treachery, will keep his part? Where is this prisoner? Let him be brought forward and yielded to us, and then we will consider these demands. It seemed then to Gandalf intent, watching him as a man engaged in fencing with a deadly foe, that for the taking of the breath the messenger was at a loss, yet swiftly he laughed again. Do not bandy words in your insolence with the mouth of Sauron, he cried. Surety you crave, Sauron gives none. If you sue for his clemency, you must first do his bidding. These are his terms. Take them or leave them.
These we will take, said Gandalf suddenly. He cast aside his cloak, and a white light shone forth like a sword in that black place. Before his upraised hand, the foul messenger recoiled, and Gandalf, coming, seized and took from him the tokens, coat, cloak, and sword. These we will take in memory of our friend, he cried, but as for your terms, we reject them utterly. Get you gone, for your embassy is over, and death is near to you. We did not come here to waste words in treating with Sauron, faithless and accursed, still less one with one of his slaves. Be gone. Then the messenger of Mordor laughed no more, his face twisted with amazement and anger to the likeness of some wild beast as it crouched on his prey, and is smitten the muzzle with a stinging rod. Rage filled him, and his mouth slavered. Its shapeless sounds of fury came strangling from his throat, but he looked at the fell faces of the captains and their deadly eyes, and fear overcame his wrath. He gave a great cry and turned, leaped upon his steed, and with his company galloped madly back to Sir the Gorgor. But as they went, his soldiers blew their horns in a signal long arranged, and even before they came to the gate, Sauron sprang his trap. Drums rolled and the fires leaped up. The great doors of the black gate swung back wide, and out of it streamed a great host as swiftly as swirling waters when a sluice is lifted. The captains mounted again and rode back, and from the host of Mordor there went up a jeering yell. Dust rose smothering the air as from nearby there marched up an army of Easterlings that had waited for the signal in the shadows of Eridlithiu beyond the further tower. Down from the hills on either side of Morinon poured orcs innumerable. Their men of the west were trapped, and soon, all about the gray mounds where they stood, forces ten times and more than ten times their match would ring them in a sea of enemies. Sauron had taken the proffered bait and jaws of steel. Little time was left to Aragorn for the ordering of his battle. Upon the one hill he stood with Gandalf, and there, fair and desperate, was raised the banner of the tree and stars. Upon the other hill, hard and by stood the banners of Rohan and Dol Amroth, white horse and silver swan, and about each hill a ring was made facing always, bristling with spear and sword. But in the front towards Mordor, where the first bitter assault would come, there stood the sons of Elrond on the left, with the Dunedain about them, and on the right the prince Imrahil with the men of Dol Amroth, tall and fair, and picked men of the Tower of Guard. The wind blew and the trumpets sang and arrows whined, but the sun now climbing towards the south with Beeld and the reeks of Mordor, and through a threatening haze it gleamed, remote, a sullen red, as if it were ending of day, or the end, maybe, of all the world of light. And out of the gathering murk, the Nazgul came with their cold voices, crying words of death, and then all hope was quenched. Pippin had bowed, crushed with horror, when he heard Gandalf reject the terms and doom Frodo to the torment of the tower. But he had mastered himself, and now he stood beside Baragon in the front rank of Gondor with Imrael's men. For it seemed best to him to die soon, and leave the bitter story of his life, since all was in ruin. I wish Mary was here, he heard himself saying, quick thoughts racing through his mind, even as he watched the enemy come charging to the assault. Well, well, now at any rate, I understand poor Denethor a little better. We might die together, Mary and I, and since die we must, why not? Well, as he is not here, I hope he'll find an easier end. But now, I must do my best. He drew his sword and looked at it, and the intertwining shapes of red and gold and the flowing characters of Numenor glinted like fire upon the blade. This was made for such an hour, he thought. If only I could smite that foul messenger with it, then almost I should draw level with old Mary. Well, I'll smite some of his beastly brood before the end. I wish I could see the cool sunlight and green grass again. 
And even as he thought these things, the first assault crashed into them. The orcs, hindered by mires that lay before the hills, halted and poured their arrows into the defending ranks. But through them there came striding up, roaring like beasts, a great company of hill trolls of Gorgorith. Taller and broader than men they were, and they were clad only in close-fitting mesh of horny scales, or maybe that was their hideous hide. But they bore round bucklers, huge and black, and wielded heavy hammers in their knotted hands. Reckless they sprang into the pools and waded across, bellowing as they came, and like a storm they broke upon the line of the men of Gondor, and beat upon helm and head and arm and shield as smiths hewing the hot bending iron. At Pippin's side, Baragon stunned and overborne, and he fell, and a great troll chief that smote him down bent over him, reaching out a clutching claw, for these fell creatures would bite the throats of those that they threw down. And then Pippin stabbed upwards. And the written blade of Westerness pierced through the hide and went deep into the vitals of the troll, and his black blood came gushing out. He toppled forward and came crashing down like a falling rock, bearing those underneath him. Blackness and stench and crushing pain came upon Pippin, and his mind fell away into a great darkness. So it ends as I guessed it would, his thought said, even as it fluttered away, and it laughed a little within him before it fled. Almost gay it seemed to be casting off at last all doubt and care and fear. And even as it winged away into forgetfulness, it heard voices, and they seemed to be crying in some forgotten world far above. The eagles are coming! The eagles are coming! But for one moment, Pippin's thought hovered. Bilbo, it said, but no. That came in his tale long ago. This is my tale, and it is ended now. Goodbye, and his thought fled far away, and his eyes saw no more. That is the end of the chapter, The Black Gate, and that is where we leave off today. So those are the big things that, to me, really stuck out, and I know a lot of that part was reading, but that was all super powerful dialogue and, you know, it, the, the whole calm before the final storm. And even you know, thinking about the despair that all of these people are feeling, and especially we get like a perspective from Pippin of knowing he's going to die, and all these last thoughts that he's having before, you know, he stabs that troll and, and ends up killing it after he killed Baragon. So Baragon's gone, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's like, has this final thought and it says, like, the eagles are coming. He thought he heard that and he's like, no, that was in Bilbo's tale, but now mine's ended. And it says, I saw no more. So, you know, as we, as we leave off right here, you know, we have a, an indication or we can at least draw, draw uh, a conclusion that Pippin's dead. I don't know if that's actually going to be the case or not, but you know, from where we just read and left off, it's very, very possible. And so, you know, it just it seems bad things after bad things are happening. On top of that, what was the biggest thing we learned in that whole chapter was that Sauron had Frodo and Sam's clothing and weapons. Like they had the mail coat, it had the uh, brooch with the elvish leaf on it, and it had Sam's sword. So they have some of Frodo and Sam's articles. So you know, obviously we. As readers, we know that what happened, at least to this point, uh, in, in the novel, Frodo was taken by the orcs in the, in the watchtower past the, you know, the path of Sirith Ungol, or which is where Shelob, the great spider, was, and you know, Frodo was taken there. He, they stripped him of his clothes. They, you know, took him hostage, and Sam went to follow him. So we don't know what happens, but uh, you know. To Gandalf and Aragorn and, and everyone there looking, it looks you know looks like the game's over, 
right? The, the whole game is, hey, we need to distract Mordor so Frodo and Sam have time to get to the mountain. But one thing that um, I would say they missed, or at least what give, gives it away a little bit in my head, is that the mouth of Sauron, that messenger, he seemed to speak in single, you know, singularly, as if there was one spy, as if there was one person that they found, if this one messenger was dear to you, or this one thing, they don't realize that there was two, right? Like the, what happened to, you know, with the other one. So do they really have them or do they really not, you know? So I think that was the biggest takeaway is that the, the messenger messed up by, by putting it in a singular tense that, you know, we have one person that's dear to you. We've got one captive. We're going to send him, him back to you all broken and once he's destroyed by the tortures of the tower. So I think that's what gave Gandalf the, the, the reasoning to continue on is that, hey, like there's two of them. If they don't know there's two of them, what are the odds that this is just, you know, another trap? So, or our trick, I should say, not a trap. So, uh, yeah, but that's kind of where we, we end off. Did you have any thoughts on this specific chapter? Anything that, you know, you picked up on that I missed or what? No, it was great. Um, <laughs> it's a lot on faith. <laughs> that's all I'm saying, man. But yeah, I'll let, uh, no, I thought you nailed it. Um, and I'll let you go ahead and uh, kick us off on the debates. Did you have any debates today? I did. I did have one debate, but you know, just going through that whole, that whole chapter there, I wanted to give you the opportunity to kind of go through yours first, just so that way we can talk about the the big one there. And then I've only got like a small one that's not too crazy. So uh, yeah, I'll let you kind of you know go into what one you because you've been mentioned earlier that you had one that uh, it's going to probably take a little bit of thought to go into. So I'm excited to hear it. Yeah. Um... So here's my debate, and it kind of goes into what my takeaways are of this chapter. So my big debate here is, say, if you were in that meeting of the chapter, you know, the last debate they were talking about, right? And Gandalf is saying, you know, the jaws are going to close on us, right? Like, this is it. We're going out with our 7,000 versus, (laughs) you know, we're going to die. Like, we don't have any chance here. And it's all up to faith, really, at this point, if Frodo and Sam can get to the top of Mount Doom and cast that ring into the fire, which is a big what if. Like, that's a big what if. They don't even know if they're there. They just know Faramir saw him a couple of days ago. Meanwhile, Faramir, you know, he's clinging on for dear life right now. So it's not like, you know, they can really consult him on, like, maybe what track they went to find out a little more information or anything, right? What would it take to convince you that this is the best route? Or do you think you would have spoke up in that meeting and said, you know, we could cause a diversion, but maybe another way where we don't all get slaughtered? Or is there another way into Mordor? Also, I want to know, say if the ring is lost, like no one knows what happens to Frodo. No one knows what happens to Sam. Say they never hear from him again. But they don't necessarily know if Sauron has the ring yet or any of his men have found the ring. What happens at that point? Is it check-in mate and the game is over? Or do you find a way to kind of rebuild your army over the next whatever years it is and, and try to make another stand? Like, what is the plan? What it, or is this the true end game? And is this the only option here? Man, I think... Uh... 
Doctor Strange went ahead and and looked into the future and said, of all the 14 million and some odd uh, <laughs> outcomes, this is the one that we got to go with. Just simply because, number one, Sauron's not going to give them years to rebuild. You know what I mean? Like, oh, go ahead and take your time. I'll just come after you when I feel like it. Like, he's not going to give them the opportunity. You know, they almost took him out with, like, the first great assault on the city of Gondor there. It took everything in them just to survive that. Now they've got 7,000 men. Well, 6,000, really, because the other 1,000 went to go try to take back the other area, you know, Cary Andros, I think it was. So, you know, you got 6,000, and it said there was 10 times the number and more than 10 times the number. So 10 times the number 6,000, you're looking at 60,000 at least. Then on top of that, that's more than 10s. You can, you can somewhere, somewhere between 80,000 to 100,000 was what I would assume the hosts of Mordor have. And so the reason why I do think this is really the only play is like, what else are you going to do at this point in time? You know, you can't retreat back anywhere. They're going to come chase you down. They've got, you know, you're going to get exhausted. They've got so many people that they can have, you know, some people go fast and some go slow, some rest and some overtake. Like, you're going to get overtaken. You're going to get, you're running away. You're going to get routed. Like, it's not even going to be a battle at that point. And, you know, everything you've done up until this point has been done for nothing. So you can't really retreat. There's really no allies you can call on. The elves are all leaving. It doesn't seem like they want anything to do with this battle. They're like, hey, we're heading off of like Middle-earth. We're just going to go head over to the Undying Lands. Um, it was great knowing you guys. Great hanging out for a bit. But um, have fun dying. Um, we're, we're, gonna, we're, we're just going to get right on out of here. So don't even worry about it. You can have a couple of my sons. They'll, they'll die fighting. They think that's cool. So, um, But outside of that, we're, we're all just going to bounce out of here. You know, um, so there's just really no other allies you can really call for. And even if there were, like, they're not going to be able to match the amount of numbers that Mordor has been accumulating over all these years. They're not going to get that in, like, a day or two. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's this is really the only play that they have. And, and you know, it, it is a good play in terms of the whole idea of it is to fix Sauron's eye solely on the front force of its gate. There, so he's got no idea what's going behind him. So you know, Frodo and Sam basically have a clear path. If they, you know, like you said, we don't know what their fate is right now. Especially Gandalf, Aragorn, and Legolas, and Gimli, and Imrahil, and Eomer, and Eldon, and Elrond. Here, they have got no idea what the fate of uh, Frodo and Sam are. But this is this is the best you got because either let's say it's one of two options, right? Number one, they're going to be successful. They're going to get that ring to the, the, the mount, the fire, and they're going to die probably anyways because, you know, they are just <laughs> overwhelmed by the numbers. Or they failed, and the ring's gone into the hands of the enemy, or it's lost again, and they're going to die anyways. There's really, like, like, <laughs> like this is it. You're going to your death, and you're, at least with this, there is the, the slightest chance that we're giving the 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 sneak attack you know, this is this you know we're talking we always like to do sports analogies this is like the ultimate trick play this is the this is miracle at the meadowlands i'm talking throwing the you know getting the kickoff <laughs> and throwing it backwards and it going down the way you know this is this is like the immaculate reception bouncing off and franco harris picking up inches off the ground and running in for a score uh, this is this is the ultimate trick play this is wildcat right now we're running the wildcat offense and frodo and sam they are the ones that, you know, they, we're causing a diversion with the people you think are going to give Sauron the hardest time. You know, Gandalf, super strong, like one of the most powerful people in Middle-earth. Aragorn, King Returned, you know, and uh, the Ranger from the North of Numenor Bloodline. We got, 
you know, Aomer, the, the new king of Rohan. We got Imrahil, the prince of Dol Amroth. We got Eldon and Elro here. Elrond's sons, like these. This is where you think the problem is going to be. This is you know that that's where you're you're preparing to fight the best. But little do you know, people you're not even thinking about are you know they they've got their own little plan of action. You know so. Like this is this was the one shot that they had is that we're gonna we're gonna muster up as big a force as we can, we're gonna take it to them, we're gonna try to hit them in the mouth and, and take all the you know attention away from everything else on the Middle Earth for a little bit as long as we can, and hopefully that's enough time for Frodo to get to the fire. But if he's dead, we're fucked. <laughs> you know, it's like we're probably <laughs> we're probably fucked anyways to be honest. So like, uh, yeah, dude. So I know that was a long-winded way of saying that. This was really the only move, but yeah, man, like this was really the only move. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you. Question though, so w- say if you're in the situation, say you're in the army yourself, right? And you see that the mouth of Sauron has just thrown in front of Gandalf, you know, the mithril um, garments and all that stuff just to try to prove that they have Frodo. So how much would that kind of you know I I don't want to say like kill your sense of spirit but would that sway your opinion at all of like maybe we're banking too much on this one hobbit or like do you think that like how much of your opinion would be bought into the fact of like they're they're still on their way there so I mean in my opinion, the only people that really knew about the, the, the whole ending of this all are, are the, the captains, right? So for me, I think only Pippin, Gandalf, Aragorn, Eomer, uh, Imrahil, Eladon, Elrohir, and maybe some of the Dúnedain, obviously Aragorn, uh, know the mission. Like, they know that what they're, what they're fighting for. I think the, most, the rest of the men that followed them are just following orders. I don't think they all really know what they're fighting for or what the plan is. I think they just think, oh, we're going to do our best to, you know, try to fight with everything that we got and take out a host that's greater than us. Like go down 300 style in, in the in the day of the Romans, right? Or the Trojans, right. I should say. You know, so I, I just, you know, with that being said, I don't think that the gravity of that really affected the majority of the army because they don't really know what it meant. To them, it's just like, oh, they lost one of their friends or one of their friends you know, that they part into it as a spy, as the mouth of Sauron was saying, was caught. And, you know, okay, that sucks, but, you know, we're still here to, to fight and try to win. And gotcha. so, you know, with the, with the captains, it's going to hit them a little harder because they know, like, the whole truth behind what they're trying to do here. But I do think, you know, they put trust in Gandalf. And Gandalf was able to kind of see through that lie there of, you know, especially when he was talking in the singular tense of talking about, oh, it was this one person dear to you. Well, we're going to torture him. We're going to send him back to you. Like, there was no mention of a secondary individual. And because of that, I think Gandalf was able to realize it's a bluff. And so then you realize that your, your coach there is not worried and there, that there was something maybe you missed. Then you're like, okay, you know what? Yeah, we're just going to, we're just going to keep going plan as, you know, status quo. We're going to keep going plan as is and see what happens. Absolutely. And then last part here, and I'll kind of give you my take. So what are is your thoughts, say, if even if you're one of the captains, right? What are your thoughts of most likely, are you thinking most likely our timing is going to work out well? Because even though, even though 
if you have been informed by Faramir that Frodo and Sam are on their way there, but now you know with Gollum, right? Because of what he informed them with the Trixie and False. <laughs> <laughs> so what are your thoughts on... Are you thinking there's an idea that definitely they're kind of going to be around the same place, so the timing's going to work out well on this? Or are you thinking, like, this is just a shot in the dark, I hope this is where they're at? Or do you think maybe we beat them there because they're going these alternate paths and it's definitely a more difficult route to get there than us just going straight up to the gate? Or do are you thinking kind of they're already there trying to toss it in so they need a distraction right now? I think it was a shot in the dark. Like I just, I just don't know how you can, unless you know. I, I think I can think of a way in my head, but I don't think that they thought of this, or at least it was not brought up in the story. Because obviously, you know, this is kind of funny because we haven't really spoken about these creatures much until the very, very end of this last chapter we mentioned. But like, it says eagles are coming. Eagles are coming. Gandalf, I, I feel like if he was smart. He could have, you know, drawn one of the eagles to him and had it fly over and try to get like a an aerial view of Mordor and see maybe they can get a peek of where you know Frodo and Sam might be if they threw it. Like, you know, if he told the eagle to go, hey, go scout this out, tell me what you see, you know, or whatever it might be, and you might be having an idea. But it never said that that happened and never showed that that happened. So, in my, you know, my best educated guess, you know, maybe he did do that and it just wasn't written down or something of that same line, or maybe Gandalf is just got that power of foresight and he can see a little bit into the future or get an idea of where they might be. But I truly think it was a shot in the dark because uh, so many things could happen. You know, these, number one, they're hobbits. They can't walk as far and as long as normal men can, or maybe they can walk like longer or farther, but not as fast or quickly. So you're pretty much trying to judge and guess the best you can how fast they would move. If they would get through the pass they would get through, if they were going to be hindered by anything, are they going to run into orcs? Are they going to run into, uh, you know, any trouble? Obviously with Shelob, they don't even know Shelob exists, right? So it, it's... It, it would just be so impossible to be able to time it perfectly to where, okay, we need this distraction now because I know that they're about 46 steps away from Mount Doom. You know what I mean? Like, I just, yeah. I just really think 100% that it was a shot in the dark and they're just like, we're just going to give it our all and just hope that we can hold out long enough for them to get there. And if they get there too late and we die, we die. And if they get there in time and they throw it down, we'll still probably die. But at least like, we'll know that we did our job. So uh, that's, that's what I think. <laughs> And think about that too. That's almost like almost like modern day armies, right? Uh, like they kind of just like it doesn't. It's not necessarily like story fantasy tales where you think like one battle is like one day and one side's definitely wiped out. It's kind of like the defending side, even though we're kind of on the offense here. You know, just holds out as long as they can. Like it can be for days and days and days. Like imagine thinking that. Like, fuck, like, we're going to die eventually, but we're just going to try to keep fighting as long as we can. Like, we're going to take this as many rounds as we can in this UFC match. <laughs> where hopefully we're just, you know, eventually you bleed out at some point, <laughs> but hopefully you got a chance. My take on this is I'm right there with you. I think it's it's absolutely one hell of a shot in the dark. I mean, I would be... It's not that I would be scared or terrified in a way because I think my mind is just pretty much all in at that point. Almost like in the words of, you know, like that guy and never back down. He's like, you're either backing up or you're getting the hell in. Like That's like kind of all you can do. So I think you're just kind of all in at that point. Like this is it. 
but it would definitely be like my thoughts were like it, my thoughts would probably be more on the side of like okay i'm just gonna go ahead and tell my family how much they meant to me like this has been a great ride like i'm not expecting to come out of this at all like if i come out of this that's a great bonus like man that was that was like man don't know how that happened that i definitely drew the lottery ticket but my mind would definitely be of like this is probably not gonna work like, i'm okay with this like i'm gonna go with what you say because i believe in this not just like a you know achilles said like imagine a king that fights his own battles wouldn't that be a sight <laughs> like i'm gonna go in because i'm going back to troy fucking hell yeah love that fucking movie my point being is like yeah this was an entire shot in the dark in my opinion i wouldn't have any doubts in my mind that it would actually work when Gandalf told me this but I would just be like sure Gandalf you know you know you got more more wisdom than me you got clearly more power than me you've carried us you know through this whole thing you saved her ass at Helm's Deep you know you got us through this whole battle of Gondor fine you know what fuck it man like we're all gonna die i'm in this with you but definitely my thoughts would be like this is clearly clearly not gonna work absolutely at all so i'm gonna go ahead and tell my family you know it's been real make sure i have my life insurance upped <laughs> that's what i would say man but yeah what about you brother what about your debate for the day my debate for the day goes back to the battle of the Pelennor Fields, you know, right outside the city gates of Gondor. My question is, what would have happened? Because I, I mentioned that Gandalf had intentions of going out and riding out to battle, uh, but ended up getting sidetracked to save Faramir instead and decided that was the way to go instead of being of use on the field of battle. What do you think would have happened if he did partake in that battle? Is that something where we think maybe the good guys could have won a bit sooner and, and prevented a lot of loss of life? Or on the flip side, could have actually been worse and maybe, you know, what ended up happening to Eowyn and uh, Mary if Gandalf decides to take on the Witch King one-on-one, -on -one, you know, he is a, you know, a wizard, but is a wizard technically still a man? Would he be able to contend with it? What, how would that go? Like, like does, does Gandalf end up, you know, maybe throwing him down, but he himself come into like a state like Eowyn and Mary and Faramir were where he's incapacitated and if so that really can throw things off for the remainder of whatever happens so you know was it a good thing or a bad thing and like what do you think would have happened if Gandalf entered the battle as planned uh, right on the fields outside the city of Gondor to assist the Rohan the men of Gondor and eventually Aragorn when they come off the the ships from the Corsairs of Umbar you bring up a really good point I think in my personal opinion I think it could be really bad because do I think Gandalf has potential to beat the Witch King? Absolutely. He beat the Balrog, but also it took everything out of him to do it. And in the words of the Witch King, literally straight out of the book <laughs> with the Nazgul here, no man can beat me. <laughs> so, and what is Gandalf? A man. I mean, who really knows i guess he's a myar <laughs> so i mean but i think me personally i think it would have been kind of like a balrog situation if he fought him like i think personally i think it was kind of like a prophecy like eowyn no one really expected her to be there i don't think i mean she was going 
by that other name <laughs> of that other writer picked up little little mary on the way <laughs> oh mary bright contrary get ready for a sleigh ride <laughs> here you go <laughs> picked him up and said good luck <laughs> see what you got going for you but i just think it would i think gandalf can do it don't get me wrong if anyone else could do it besides a1 it's gandalf however i think it kind of would have been one of those things I think it would have been kind of one of those, you know, fight to the death situations. Uh, almost like a Jamie Lannister versus Euron, right? Like, this is it. Like, yeah, you're going to make it through it, but you also could be taken out at the same time. And then you have a really bad situation because now you're going to the Black Gate here where you really need him the most, like, especially for all the other captains. I mean, I think Aragorn could lead lead the stride but Gandalf definitely gives you that extra push with his wisdom and in, in the situations he's been in before like I in my personal opinion I don't think anyone can sit here and tell me that Gandalf doesn't give almost like just like you said the coach right if you got a bad coach I don't care how many damn stars you got they're not gonna have exactly that high sense of spirit when they're going against the damn all-star team like you know it's just not happening like i'm sorry tom brady's about to slay your ass like you're not gonna hold up much against you know tom terrific probably the greatest of all time here so i think it could have been a very bad situation um i think it could do it um but i think it all just played out according to plan just by luck in my opinion i think if gandalf wasn't fighting that battle at gondor i think he would have been there because that's his fighting spirit and he wants to try to lead them and give them every ability he can to win these battles but it just so happened he's over here making sure <laughs> Denethor doesn't burn the whole place down alive from the inside so i think it just so happened it worked out that way just like going back to, I always bring this quote up, you know, we always talk about it here because it, it really is like this entire journey for them is on the blade of a knife. Like every single situation they've done, it's literally the butterfly effect. It just happened by luck to fall into place. Even the Battle of Gondor just happened or the Battle of Pelennor Fields, you know, every situation, just like Aragorn bailing their ass out. Or Gandalf bailing their ass out. Like, someone is bailing their ass out here. Just like, we'll probably go into next week and we'll see what happens. Bailing their ass out. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, my opinion is I, I, I think it could have been very bad uh, to answer your question. What about you? Yeah, I mean, not very often times do. I generally agree with most things you say. I usually have a bit of disagreement, at least some part throughout the oh, way. Thanks, but man. It's Appreciate a, it. <laughs> this is the truth. You know, that's what we do this for, right? We debate on you know our thought process and kind of you know back it up with our, our facts and evidence. But there's not much that I think you really got wrong there. I really I agree with you that just because I don't think the benefit outweighs the potential detractors. So let's say Gandalf does run out into that field of battle. And, you know, he's taken out hosts of orcs and stuff. Is, is one individual really going to, you know, change the tide of that to where it would go any differently, right? The good guys ended up winning. 
and or Aragorn jumped off that boat. Maybe the boat hadn't gotten there yet. Maybe they held like a hope, like the hope is there and remains a little bit better. It's just like the only potential positives I could see is maybe Gandalf gets to the Nazgul before it takes out King Faden. Uh, well, and even then, like the Nazgul, like, you know, the the Ringwraith itself didn't really take out King Thaden. Took out his horse, and the horse c- collapsed on him and crushed him. So, you know, it, it, it's possible that he might have been able to have a little one on one with the Witch King before he came to Theoden, and maybe Theoden survives it. But even with that, is that really big of a difference if Theoden survives versus Aomer? You know, that that doesn't really change much. That's like you know replacing one for one. I don't think that really, you know, does much benefit for you. And then on top of that, like, I don't see him taking out 300 orcs by himself or bad guys or whatever they, the Easterlings and whoever else the hosts of Mordor are comprised of. So it's really, to me, it was, yeah, it was fate in a way Like you were mentioning, you know, you said luck, I say more fate. It was just, he was not meant to be there. He was not meant to be in, in the battle, you know, as much as he thought he should be. You know, there was a reason why he was the only one that could really stop Denethor from burning Faramir and himself in the, in the Citadel, or not the Citadel, the, the, like, the funeral location, I forget the name. But, you know, so he, had, he had to make a tough choice. He's like, dude, do I just lead these people out in battle without a leader or a commander for the men of Gondor? Well, Rohan's here, so they've got Aomer. Well, King Thaden's dead, so yikes, this could be dicey. Ah, you know what? I think this is the right move. I gotta, I gotta make sure, you know, the captain of the city, the steward of Gondor survives because I mean, at least one of them does meaning Faramir if they could get him to survive you know so it, and like you mentioned let's say he does get out there in the battlefield and ideally what you want is you want your star player to go one-on-one with their star players so you're going to end up having this confrontation with the witch king and and Gandalf and so it, it it could very well be like a Balrog situation where you know we mentioned it you might be able to defeat it but at what cost you know if you're if you're incapacitated or you're out of commission and now you're in the house of healing but you don't have the wisdom that you know who else there has the wisdom that Gandalf has no one so it's like we really got to get Gandalf back and healed up and as best we can and you know even if he does survive the encounter and he is healed he's not going to be at 100% by the time they need him to be to go you know confront the black gates of Mordor so yeah I agree 100% with you in the overall arching theme that it was best that Gandalf was not on the battlefields and that fate allowed it to be, you know, him to be where he needed to be and that if he himself was in fact on the battlefields, this could have turned out a lot differently for the worse, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, man, that's a badass episode today, but uh, don't worry, guys, it is not over yet. <laughs> Thanks for being on the ride, though, but... Um we're we're finally next week we are literally at the top of the mountain the top of mount doom coming next week man so i'll let you uh close this out today any like final takeaways or anything thoughts you had no i'm, I'm excited to get to like you said we're literally at the top of the mountain next week so next week's episode is a definite can't miss so if you've been joining us all along this way you know don't don't jump off the tracks now we're, we're, we're almost there and we're almost home and you know this has been an amazing series up until this point we're really about to hit the climax depending on what you view as the climax but uh, you know th- th- this is your first time joining us we hope you enjoyed what you heard we hope you stick around and those who have started from the very beginning and have stuck around all this time thank you for being the shields that guard the realms of fantasy 
Uh, for those who are brand new, go ahead and follow us on all of our social pages. We are on Instagram at official ridiculous Patronus. We're on TikTok at ridiculous Patronus. We have a Facebook fan page, Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. We're on YouTube, ridiculous Patronus. We have our own site, ridiculouspatronus.blogspot.com. We've got a backup Instagram at fact underscore or underscore fantasy. Backup TikTok at fact underscore or underscore fantasy. And we also, you know, if you're looking to kind of figure out where you can find the podcast itself, go ahead. If you're an, uh, an Apple user, we do. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. If you are an Android user, you can find us on Google Play. You can find us on Spotify. Find us on iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Audible, Stitcher, Acast, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts. We are there, so please leave us all the reviews, all the comments you have, any questions, concerns. We love the audience engagement, but we're out for the day, guys, because you know this has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh. Fact or fantasy. Signing off. off.